0: Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 49. And I'll read the last four verses for us now, as we prepare to hear from Dale South, as he helps us continue in our summer sermon series titled, Questioning Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do it is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great."
1: Well, our passage this morning uh, actually parallels a teaching that you're familiar with, probably from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what we find in Luke chapter 6, it was just read, is commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. Most scholars believe that we're probably talking about the same event, the same teaching, just from two different perspectives, because Jesus was on the Mount and it says in Luke six seventeen, and he came down to a level place where he encountered a great crowd of his disciples and a multitude of people that were not even yet his disciples. So most scholars believe that 5 through 7 and Luke 6 are describing the same event from different perspectives. And I encourage you to go back and read Matthew 5 through 7 and then Luke 6 and then see where they are alike and where they may be different. Now, uh, up to this point, uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus has declared and shown all kinds of authority. And again, I encourage you to go back and look at, at Luke 4 and 5 in the gospel of Luke and, and make a note of every time Jesus or Luke mentions Jesus having authority or infers him having authority. But in those chapters, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over temptation. Jesus has authority to, over demons, to cast out evil spirits. He has authority over sickness and diseases to bring healing. He has authority to give someone even a new name. He has authority to forgive sins. And he is the authority or the Lord even of the Sabbath. So all of these demonstrations of authority point to Jesus as the king that God had promised that he was going to send. And they point to the initial stages of the kingdom of God Coming to invade and to overcome the kingdoms of this world. Now, these demonstrations of authority pointing to Jesus uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus there is telling these great crowds how his kingdom is different from all the other kingdoms of this world. That his kingdom is actually a countercultural kingdom. Some have called it the upside-down kingdom. And our, our natural perception of what the kingdom of God would be like, for me, just to even think about, I, I, my first starting point is an earthly kingdom. So my, my tendency would be to think, well, the kingdom of God is going to be like an earthly kingdom, except it's going to be more powerful. It's going to be more just. It's not going to be corrupt. But what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Plain and then in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, in these passages, Jesus is, is teaching that the kingdom of God does not operate it like the earthly kingdoms do. It's, it's quite different. It is completely contrary in many aspects. So he's trying to reprogram our way of thinking about how things should operate in God's kingdom and how they will operate in God's kingdom. So I'm going to get to the big idea. I just put it out there very early this morning in the sermon. And we'll go ahead and continue and develop it as we go along. But as we look through this passage in Luke chapter 6 this morning. The big idea is that the world's kingdoms run on reciprocity. The kingdom of God runs on divine generosity. So we've got human reciprocity or divine generosity. Generosity. Now, the way Jesus compares and contrasts human kingdoms with God's kingdom is, is actually more pronounced in Matthew 5. That's why I'd like you to take some time during the week and go back there. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus repeatedly uses like this formula where he says, You have heard it said, but on the other hand, I say to you. And he does that formula repeatedly repeatedly. To address a familiar topic to the people and then to show them how their understanding of that topic is quite different than what God's kingdom's understanding of that topic is. Uh, For instance, in the human kings he addresses anger, which everybody's familiar with. He says, you have heard it said about this, but I say to you something quite different. About lust, you have heard it said, but I say to you something quite different. About divorce, it was said, but I say to you something quite different. And he uses this same pattern when teaching about making oaths or about retaliation or about hating your enemies. And and Jesus basically, I think, is saying, everything you've heard about these topics is incomplete at best and sometimes just flat out wrong. And it does not align With the values and the practices of my kingdom that runs on divine generosity in place of human reciprocity. So in in Luke 6.27, the first verse of the passage we read, we don't see the you have heard it said part there. But Luke does record the but I say to you part. He begins, but I say to you. And again, when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's contrasting his kingdom with what people have heard all their lives from the culture and the kingdom in which they live. Now, you and I, we've, we've all grown up hearing and thinking uh, about how we're supposed to treat our enemies, and particularly outside of the church, most everything we've heard is how to combat our enemies or else how to avoid our enemies. Uh, Then Jesus comes along with this, but I say to you, and he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, I, I can only imagine that some of the people hearing Jesus, particularly the ones in that large crowd who weren't yet his disciples, they probably wondered if they were hearing right. I mean, the guy that they were starting to think just might be the savior king that God had promised to send. The one who was they were planning on to set them free from all their enemies was basically saying, you guys need to treat your enemies kind of like their family. And we need we need to recognize here that when Jesus speaks of love, He is not talking about feelings. He's not talking about warm affectionate emotions. He's talking about actions that demonstrate love, even though our feelings may be far, far from what we would think of as loving feelings. Now, in verses 29 and 30 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus continued and he gave some concrete examples of how his followers might put his command to love, to do good. To bless and to pray for enemies and to practice. He says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So now, after being struck by someone that obviously intends harm, and an act in the culture that was very humiliating and degrading, Jesus says, Offer them even more of your body. Give them a little more of your dignity. And from the one who, who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, the, the tunic was an inner garment, and the cloak was an outer garment. In legal proceedings in Jewish, you couldn't even take the cloak overnight. You had to give it, give it back before sunset. But after having taken the cloak, he says, now give him the shirt off your back too. Now, take taken your protective outer garment. Give him the one closest to your skin. And then he says, give to everyone Who begs from you. Give your money. Give your resources. And from the one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. These are hard, hard things for me. Uh, I I have a hard time treating my friends that way. Much less my enemies. (laughs) And, And yet Jesus modeled those things. If you look at those things. Jesus did those. They even took his cloak on the day he was crucified. Now, when Jesus is talking about these things, about loving your enemies and how we're to do it, turn the other cheek, give them your tunic also, give to who begs. Uh, When they take your stuff away, don't demand it back. Give up your ownership. I believe he's referring back to the beatitude in Luke 6.22 that we did not read this morning. And that says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Uh, in our culture today, there are probably going to be some times when people think that we are haters or that we are evil because of the, the, the values that we might have and try to uphold. And Jesus says, is that the case? Love them. Pray for them. Give them more than they're asking for. Uh, instead of treating people like they treat us, Jesus instructs the, his followers to treat others Even our enemies, the way that we would like to be treated. And and his command, and as you wish others would do to you, so do to them in 631, was was absolutely radical. Because you see, Hinduism and Confucianism and other faiths that were older, even quite a bit of Judaism, they they had a version of the golden rule that was presented in, in negative terms. It was the idea, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Okay, so again, just kind of avoid your enemies. This is how, if you don't want to get them riled up, don't rile them up. But in contrast, Jesus took a positive approach and a very proactive approach, and he said to do to others, even your enemies, what you wish they would do to you, even though they wish to harm you. Now, this is clearly Jesus'. Uh, being very upfront here, he's got this crowd of people, he's got his disciples, and there's absolutely no bait and switch going on here trying to get followers, right? Because it almost looks like he's trying to talk people out of following him. (laughs) He's certainly warning them uh, that the, the kingdom that he is bringing looks a lot different than any kingdom they have ever known. And it probably looks a lot different than the kingdom they were hoping for. The one that they thought they were expecting God to bring to them. But Jesus wanted all these people to know that his mission went very far beyond their imaginations and aspirations. Jesus says, my kingdom and my mission goes a whole lot further than your individual freedom and your individual blessings. So I want to jump ahead to the main question from Jesus that we're addressing this morning in our Questioning Jesus series in in verse 46, where he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Now, I really believe that everything in our passage that we've read from 27 on down leads up to this question. So we we want want to go through our text with that question, looking at everything we've read with that question in mind. And right away, I'm struck by the repeated use of Lord, Lord that Jesus uses there. Uh, When somebody uses your name twice in Scripture, it's often a term of affection. But it's it's something you want to take note of. And scholars have different suggestions as to what Jesus meant to communicate with his repetition, Lord, Lord. Uh, It ranges from a term of like intimate relationship and affection is on the one hand. It, It could mean Like passion and intensity, like you're the Lord, you're the Lord, we're we're, we're with you. And some scholars believe that it could actually mean, and in later times does mean, uh, the very name of Yahweh. This idea of Lord, Lord, looking back to the name of the Lord God Yahweh in the Old Testament. So at at the time of Jesus teaching the people, it's unlikely that anyone would have understood him to be referring to himself as God. We, we We can acknowledge that. However, by the time Luke wrote his gospel, after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, some people may have understood him to be saying he was God there, and historic Christianity certainly does. So as we look at that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, there's a sense in which we could ask that question about any commandment. That we tend to disobey. We we could say, Why do you you call me Lord, Lord, and then lie to people about what's really going on in your life? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, as if you're this intimate follower and you're passionate about me, and then you visit the sites that you visit on the internet? See, these these perhaps could be extensions of what's happening in Luke 6, but I I really believe Jesus' question. 46 is specifically and directly related back to the very first verses the ones we've been talking about I I believe Jesus is saying why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not what I tell you about loving your enemies about doing good to them uh, about blessing them, about praying for them you see as as, as with each of Jesus' questions that we're looking at this summer we want to remember that God doesn't ask us questions because he needs information He asks questions because we need instruction. So how does Jesus' question instruct us here in Williamsburg, Virginia in 2023? I believe the most immediate and specific instruction is we cannot honestly say that we're following Jesus as Lord in an intimate, passionate relationship if we are not loving our enemies. I I think that that is the clear instruction. I think there's some less direct instruction. We look at the kingdom of God compared to the kingdoms of humanity in this reciprocity, generosity comparison as well. And that's where we want to really kind of dig down a little bit deeper here. We've mentioned how the kingdom of God is countercultural to the kingdoms of this world. Now, some people hear countercultural and they think, well... Counterculture must mean I need to fight the culture. I, I need to conquer the culture around us. As I look at the scripture, I, I really I just don't see Jesus uh, doing that. I don't see the apostles after him doing that. I don't see them openly combating the culture, telling the culture how evil it is. I, I don't see them trying to combat the culture through political power or through physical force. The Bible does not reveal the church seeking power in the legislature or the courts or the thrones of this world. The only time we get people in the thrones or the courts are there is when they've been taken to slavery or into exile. It's not an intentional effort of the church. Um, And so the church relies on the power of the gospel to transform hearts and minds, to reflect God's heart and mind in ways that no government can ever do. And that's the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, the one that actually transforms our hearts and our minds and our actions, our speech. You see, Jesus modeled and he taught a different way for his kingdom to be countercultural. It was, it was to have a kingdom of God culture that stands in stark contrast to all the kingdoms around us and the culture around us. And I, think, I think this is the kind of counterculture that we see most clearly in the New Testament, the church combats sin. Where does it do that? It does that within the church. Okay, We combat sin within the body of Christ. Uh, we call each other uh, and encourage one another to live out these ethics that are so hard to do about kingdom living and the kingdom of God. And we'll, we'll always find that we're putting ourselves at odds with the culture around us and the <clears throat> kingdoms around us. So we really need to encourage each other not to give up the task of being different. It's hard. The Roman Empire, at the time of Jesus, ran on what is known as a patronage system. And in that system, generally, there were patrons who had more to give. Patron comes from the word pater, father. Was like some were more of a father figure. They were taking care of others. And then there were the clients who had a greater need. And the patrons would use their wealth and their power to benefit the clients. And then the clients would do favors or services to benefit the patrons. And it's what made the world go round. It was a symbiotic relationship that saturated the Roman culture from the emperor all the way down to the very lowest classes. And it was just soaking and rooted in reciprocity. It was a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And then on the flip side, it was, but if you do me harm, watch out. And Jesus' teaching just went totally against the patronage culture of the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours reciprocity. He was undermining the underpinnings of how the Roman Empire functioned. Not head on, but with this group of followers who were so filled with his spirit and doing things so differently that God was reflected in his power. And and you see, every time Jesus said, I am Lord, or he allowed somebody else to call him saying, Jesus is Lord, he was silently saying, and Caesar's not. And Caesar is not Lord, which was a title that he cherished. And Jesus did not say, Caesar, better watch your back because I'm coming after your throne. In effect, Jesus said, Caesar, I'm not interested in your throne because my throne sits above your throne. Just as he told Pontius Pilate when he said, Don't you know I have the power to release you if I want to? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. So back to the big idea the world's kingdoms run on human reciprocity, the kingdom of God runs on divine generosity. So, Jesus commands his followers to not reciprocate evil for evil. Instead, they are to practice an extreme generosity. Give the other cheek after the first one's already been struck, give your tunic after they've already demanded your cloak, give to those who beg from you, give to those who steal your goods. See, Jesus is not asking patrons to do this to their clients. He's asking his followers to practice this kind of generosity to their enemies who hate them on account of their faithfulness to him. Reciprocity is just not a value in the kingdom of God. It is a high value in the kingdoms of the world, but it is not a value in God's kingdom. I want to take just one side note here. as I had a chance to do the wedding for Masaccio and Christiana yesterday. It was a great joy. We talked a little bit about this idea of reciprocity. And there are a lot of people who are having struggles in their marriages right now because you've got this reciprocity thing going on. And you think that I'm going to do my part only if she does her part. Or I'm going to do my part only if he gets together on his act. But that was not your wedding vows. Your wedding vows were unilateral when you entered into a covenant. And you said, I am going to love you, take you for sickness, hell, better for worse, until we both are dead. See, that, that is not a... Uh, a um, with a little, my word here that is not a relationship of reciprocity okay in a world of patrons and clients everyone is looking for a benefit a way to gain advantage or a way to keep an advantage so into that Jesus asks some more questions in verses 32 to 35 we got some bonus questions going on here he says what benefit is it to you if, if you love those who love you reciprocity right what benefit is it to you if you do good to those who do good to you? Reciprocity. What credit is it to you if you lend to those who will pay you back? Reciprocity. Jesus is going against this system of patronage very clearly with his patronage language. And his instruction is there is no benefit for those reciprocity behaviors in the kingdom of God. Because even people who call Caesar Lord can do that. Even people who are sinners can do that. And then verse 35, I think, starts to tie it together even more. Love your enemies, do good, lend generously without expecting reciprocity, because God is the one who gives you the reward. Verses 35 and 36, you will be sons of the Most High. That is not a work salvation he's talking about. If you do this, then you become God's son. no. He's saying here, this is an image of the father, and he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And we reflect his mercy as we reflect mercy to other people. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, even as your father is merciful to you. That's a kingdom ethic. So followers of Jesus, we don't love our enemies to receive benefits from them. We love them to reflect God who loved us even while we were his enemies, as Romans 5 tells us. So to return evil, there's a a quote here I want to share with you from Alfred Plummer, probably a hundred and something years ago, a New Testament scholar. And he says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Followers of Jesus are generous in the way we judge others even because God has been so generous in the way that he has judged us. I have one more quote here from one of my favorite devotional authors, Paul Tripp. This is from the book, How People Change. And he says, Whenever you believe that the evil outside is greater than the evil inside you. A heartfelt pursuit of Christ will be replaced by a zealous fighting of the evil around you. A celebration of the grace that rescues you from your own sin will be replaced by a grace that rescues you, uh, that will be placed by a, a crusade to rescue the church from the ills of the surrounding culture. Christian maturity becomes defined as a willingness to defend right from wrong. And then the gospel is reduced to participation in Christian causes. See, I I don't have to pursue Jesus to fight the culture and the things around me that I don't like. I'm perfectly capable of doing that in my own flesh. But I desperately need Jesus if I'm going to love the people that I believe are promoting those evils. Verse 40 brings this truth home. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. How in the world can followers of Jesus be as generous as Jesus seems to tell them to be when no reciprocation is coming their way? I think it has to do partly with the Holy Spirit coming in to to remind us and to empower us to do those things. But I think it also has to do with seeing that we're not expecting other human beings to be the ones who give us back what we need. We're looking to God to be the one who gives us what we need. It's his divine generosity that makes this possible. You see, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God, that we can be radically generous in this kingdom because we we know we can never outgive God who has given us so much. He has promised that if we seek his kingdom first, he will give us everything that we need. And then Luke goes on to talk about being given a good measure. Uh, a good measure is a measure that he says here, that when you get your measuring cup and you're putting flour, you're putting a dry good into that, that you shake it down so that it goes to the bottom more. I've got a dog food container that'll only fit a bag if I shake it down and tamp it really well, and then everything will fit in the container. But you shake it down, and then you tamp it down even further. Then you put more on top of it until the cold cup is overflowing. And then God just says, here, stick out your apron. I'm going to put this in your lap. Okay? That's a good measure. That's the kind of reciprocity that we get from God that we can't expect from any other human being. It's God's kindness and rewarding from his grace to us with a cup overfilled. And when you and I reflect God as sons and daughters of the Most High... The ruler of the kingdom that's above every other kingdom, he gives us a better mes- measure than our generosity even deserves. It's a much better measure than human reciprocity can give us from this world. We have a God who can make water come out of a rock. We've got a God who can send manna down from heaven, a God who can feed thousands of people with a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread. We have a God who can forgive sinners, we have a God who can adopt rebels and call them his own kids we have a God who can give eternal life to people who are dead. He knows what we need. And he is greatly generous in giving us what we need. So human reciprocity or divine generosity? Which foundation are you building on? Wh- which operating system has your heart and your mind this morning? How how is your relationship with Jesus impacting how you love people who don't love you? And as you think of this word enemy this morning, before you leave, as you put a name to that word, pray for that person this morning before you leave and you'll have taken one step of obedience to God's word here this morning. When, When the Holy Spirit empowered the church to deny themselves and to love their enemies like Jesus taught them to, The kingdom of God against all odds, by His generosity invaded the kingdoms of this world's reciprocity and the gospel spread and spread and spread. May we see God do that in our day as we call Jesus Lord, Lord,
0: and follow Him in loving our enemies. Thanks so much for joining us. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we hope that during our summer sermon series, you will receive God's life-giving instruction as we examine Jesus in the Gospels questioning us.